All right. Pulling a little double duty today. So, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week, sort of. Is we've been talking about this new man concept. And, and I have to, I mean, I know I reiterate stuff a lot, but I want to make sure it's extremely clear is that we understand what this new man is, how we obtain him, all of that kind of stuff. It's all through God. I mean, that's the ultimate. Is that it's based off his work, not on ours. And we have to understand that. But once we're regenerated, once we're made new, now we are just as Christ in a sense. Okay, we're certainly not God. We don't, we're not worshipped or anything like that. But we are now the righteousness of God. When we say those words, we've got to understand what they mean is that we are no longer separated from God, but now we're brought into Him by Christ's work. Therefore, what we had done in the past doesn't matter, because it's all gone. And what we do from here on out counts, but not for our salvation. The works that we do, we, we are set aside by Christ for good works, not because of them. You guys understand that? That's what Ephesians 2.10 talks about. Is that it's four good works that we're here. And what are good works? Doing good things. I mean, one, obviously going around spreading the message of Christ. That, that's a very good thing. But when we think good works, what do we think? We think giving. We like helping the poor and the needy, the widows, whatever. You know, pick whatever flavor of the month that you want there. That's what we think of good works. And those are good things. It's the motive behind them that we do them is different than most. Because today's culture with this younger generation, they have a social aspect to what they are doing. They, you'll see them that these young, this millennial generation are starting businesses and a portion of the proceeds, their, their profits, go to help some sort of thing. They're putting uh, orphanages in, in Africa, di- drilling wells. I mean, they've got things where they have hired people overseas in these, these very third world countries, like making purses and stuff or making sandals. And then they use those. They pay these women and it allows them to create jobs. There's a social aspect to it. And that's great, right? We should be able to do that. But what's the motivation of the believer? It's not just to make your life a little better today. We want you to see the truth of the gospel. That's why we do it. That's why we help people. That's why we reach out to those that are hurting and needing. It's it's because of that new man. And you can tell when somebody gives their life to Christ, you begin to see the changes in them. It's like suddenly things begin to look a little different. And it's over time. But I mean, you just, you begin to, you look at the world differently. You're looking at how can I help somebody? How can I share this with somebody? Some people get wildly saved. Some people, it's really not anything like spectacular, but you just see these little transitions. And we started with that because we have to understand who we are in Christ, the authority that we've been given as a believer in Jesus. If we are his body, what does that mean? We are his hands and feet. And his feet should be going, and his hands should be laying, uh, being healing, and being moving, and doing things. His mouth should be speaking, right? He's the head, we are the body. Somewhere we've lost that. Because in, in America today, especially in other parts of the country, church is something you go to. It's something that you do. It's not who you are. His church is his bride. He says that it is his body. His body was never intended to just sit there, okay? His body shouldn't be watching the Super Bowl tonight, right? No? Maybe? Okay. Nobody wants to see this. The Patriots are in it. Basically, it's, it's you've got like Patriot fans and then everybody who hates the Patriots. It's, those are the two groups. But the last, the last few weeks, we've been talking about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And how Jesus said that, that he is the one that is going to baptize in the Spirit and it's going to be power from on high. It enables us to walk out and do the work that he's called us to do. 
And this is a foreign concept in a lot of churches today. In fact, it's not taught prevalently, and it's not taught correctly from a scriptural standpoint. That's why we took three weeks to go through it. Is I wanted to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a biblical concept not made up by a bunch of charismatic someday. It's like, hey, we can have a little more fun in church. Let's get wild, right? That's not what happened. We see this practice laid out clearly through how it was described and, and, and prescribed. Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. There are things in the Bible that are described, okay? The Old Testament talks about slavery. It's giving a description. That doesn't mean God was ordaining it necessarily. It was giving a description of, of different things. But there's also the prescriptional side where there's a pattern that we can follow, kind of giving us an example of how we follow those things. And when it comes to the baptism in the Spirit, we, 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 a lot of churches will say, okay, well, that's just kind of how the Holy Spirit first came. But those days are gone. We don't do that anymore. Or, or yeah, you know, we saw the apostle. They laid hands on the sick. And, they, man, there was some crazy stuff going on. But those days are over with. And the question comes down to, is that what the Bible says? And in short, the answer is no. That is not what the Bible said. Because we're to walk in the same fullness and authority. So there's several topics that we're going to go over in the next few weeks. Healing being an important one, because we got sick church, and we got sick people. And if you notice, when you read the book of Acts and you read other things, when people start getting healed, they start flocking to those that are doing it, right? There's a reason for that, because if there's anything you cannot control, it's what's happening inside of you specifically. I mean, if you're having financial problems, what do you do? Well, get a better job, get another job, do something, you can fix that. But you can't just reach inside. If you've got a heart problem, you just can't reach inside and say, oh, I'll just squeeze it a few times, it'll be good. Because if you try that, it'll be your last. Okay? But you got that. We've got all these different things. These healing, the anointing, what is it? And more importantly, what is it not? Because the way we use the language today isn't necessarily biblical. It is specific, and it has a purpose. And I'll tell you, you are anointed. But we'll get into that later. What about faith? This is a big one. We're faith church. In fact, our, if, if you tied us with anything, we would be word of faith. Not the word of faith wackos that you see on TV and they come up with some strange doctrine, right? We all get painted with the same broad brush. We stick with the scriptures. But what does faith mean? What is faith? How do we obtain faith? What do we do with faith? And what does faith do for us? And I'll tell you, it has been taught incorrectly for years. Because if we look at the example in the Bible, what it is, we can also see what it is not. But then you've got miracles, and you've got the gifts of the Spirit, and you've got all these things that happen, that should be happening to the body of Christ today, and yet, for some reason, they're not, at least not as prevalent as they once were. I mean, you look at the, uh, the New Testament. There is stuff happening every day. John talked about, at the end of it, in the end of the book of John, and we read this, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, how that if they wrote down every miracle that Jesus had performed, there's not enough books in this world to contain it. He was three years, guys. Three years. From the point that the Holy Spirit came upon him, he starts doing these things, and he did that much. Why aren't we? Where's the power gone, and how do we find it again? Now, last week was interesting because as you experienced and as you saw, the Holy Spirit moves today. I know many of you were touched last week. I know many of you came to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that comes with a responsibility because now we've got to do something with it. It's not enough to just know about it. Janet and I were talking about this this morning. Is the church today knows a lot of stuff, but we don't put into practice the things that we know. And the example that I use is like it's kind of like a doctor. He spent seven years in med school. He goes through his residency and all of this other stuff, and he's sitting at a restaurant, and there's a man over there choking. 
Who should be the one to get up and fix that? Perform the Heimlich. It should be the doctor. But if the doctor sat there and like, oh yeah, I know how to do the Heimlich, and doesn't get up and keeps eating a sandwich, what good did it do? All that knowledge came to naught if you can't put it into practice. And that's where we got to go. But the problem is we have today is there's people that would disagree with this. And they would say, well, yeah, the, the power of God was real and prevalent, but it ended. It doesn't move like that today. In fact, God's kind of hand off. If you've heard the, the, some of the sayings that the early church fathers were deist, deist means that, yes, there is God and he's a higher power, but he's hands off from his people. And if you read the writings of the early church fathers, not what they're saying that they said, but go back and read them, some of them were insulted that they were called deists because they were anything but that. You see, the question comes down to, the power of God was alive and real in the book of Acts and all through the New Testament. But did it end there? We'll call that cessationism. That's the, that's the, the theological term we throw on. It's basically the gifts and the operation of the Holy Spirit ended at that point. Now, I'm not going to go broadly into this because I don't think we have anybody here that would agree with that. And so I'm not going to sit there and go through that. But I want to show you today, is that this is going to be a little bit different. Because I'm going to show you quickly, and we're going to read one passage of Scripture today. One. And that alone is enough to refute that idea. But then I want to show you some examples through church history. Because I want to show you what some of these early church fathers, what we call them, and throughout time have said about the moving of the Holy Spirit, what we call it. Because what you saw in the book of Acts, what you saw even in the Old Testament, remember when it talked about how the glory of God filled the temple, that they couldn't even walk in, and that they would fall down? Did that stop somewhere? No. You can be in services where people are prayed for and they'll fall down. Is that of God? Is that of God? The answer is yes. Because it could be of God. It could also just not be of God. Right? Something can just fall down. Sometimes preachers get a little carried away and like to push. You laugh. I've seen it happen. Right? We get carried away. We kind of get, well, this is why they call us crazy, but, but stuff like that. It's like the power of God suddenly is like, oh, good. Hey, you guys did great for years. I know you needed me for a while. I'm out of here. I'll see you in a few years. Hope it goes well. That's nonsense. So let's look at this. Let's jump into Acts chapter 2. We read this probably the last couple of weeks. We know who the power comes from. It's from the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 2, this is Peter getting up. Remember, the Holy Spirit fell on him, 120. He stands up to preach boldly. 3,000 people are going to give their lives to Christ. In that moment, he boldly stands up. This is a new Peter. This is not the same Peter that denied Christ to the little girl. This is a new Peter. He stands up. He's bold. Acts chapter 2, verse 17, quoting from Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Now, he's quoting this as the event that just took place. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now here's the question. He's claiming that's the last days. Right? He's saying this is the event in the last days. If we are further past that, are we not still in those last days? We have to be. What else would you call them? Like the after last days? Kind of like some Star Wars trilogy where they go backwards and then forwards and nobody knows what's going on or anything like that? It's... I will pour my spirit out on all flesh in the last days. Your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy. Your young men, they'll see visions. Your old men, they'll dream dreams. In the last days, should that still be happening today? Yes, it should. Does it? Yes, it does. There's not a day that goes by that I don't read a report about a Muslim who has Christ appear to them. Sometimes they'll say, hey, there's these guys that are coming through. You need to go listen to them. And they're completely revolutionized by that. So is it possible? Sure, it happened here. Is it still the last days? You better believe it. 
and on my men's service and on my maid service. I will pour out my spirit in those days. What days? The last days. So is he still pouring out his spirit? He has to be, or he is a liar. And I don't know about you, but I'm not big and bold enough to call God a liar. And they will prophesy. Who's they? The men's servants and maid servants. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now let's pause there. What is that talking about? The return of Christ. So this last day has now been bookmarked, right? We got bookends on each side. It began in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And when does it end? When Jesus returns. So that means everything in between is the last days where he's showing signs and wonders and pouring out his spirit, right? Are we still there? Yes, we are. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's pause there for a moment. If God stopped pouring out his spirit, because some way it was just in those moments and in that time, then we would have to say that those who call on the name of the Lord can't be saved because it was only for there. This is the same prophecy. It has to be. Continue. Otherwise, we're all lost, guys. And there ain't a person in this room that wouldn't say that they're right with God. Because we can all hear and we believe it and we know what the Word says, that we give our heart to Christ that we are His children. So if, if we can still call on the name of the Lord and be saved, then most certainly the Spirit is still being poured out today. Can I get an amen? amen. I mean, come on, guys. We need, to, we need to understand this. Like, this isn't stuff that we're making up. This is stuff we're dying, that we're just driving through the Scripture to see. To see the pattern. To see how He did it and why He did it. And we know why it was important because we looked at that, right? Why was it important? It enabled them to go about preaching the Gospel to all the world. Signs and wonder. These signs will follow them that believe. Mark 16. We've talked about that stuff, right? But here's the question. What happened to the power of God? Whatever happened to it? Why don't we see it moving today? You go into third world countries, it happens all the time. In fact, uh, we're, I'm at the end of the day, we're gonna actually, I'm going to share a couple stories with you, and I'd like to have some other people share some stories of how they've seen the power of God move either in their lives or through their lives. Because guys, we've got to understand that this is still ongoing. We read about it in the book of Acts, and it's condensed, and we're seeing specific things, and we're like, well, I don't see any of that. You know why we don't see people healed today? It's because we don't go pray for them. I mean, it'd be, like, it'd be like me saying, like, boy, I, I just never seem to catch any fish. And you should ask the question, do you ever go fishing? If the answer's no, I think we solved the problem. I mean, it's just, it's that simple, but we don't do it. So what about through history? Did the power of God, because there's some that will claim that when the apostles died out, the 12, ending with Paul and John and all those guys, when they died, miracles stopped. The power of God stopped. Why? Because, well, now we have the Bible. Technically, we didn't yet, officially. But that's what they'll claim. So let's look at some of these guys. These are some names that maybe you've heard before. These are some names maybe you've never heard before. And these are people that exist and, and were, wrote tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff, stuff. Highly respected people. Let's start with a guy named Irenaeus. Good picture, right? He kind of looks like one of those, you know, when they do the alien drawings, except he's got a beard. So he lived from 130 to 202 A.D. So that was some time ago. Remember, the book of Revelation was written about 95, that right in that, that when I, John was on the island of Patmos. So he's right in there. He was, he was just born after the apostles. 
So did the power of God stop moving? Well, let's look at what he says. Now, I'll tell you, they, they wrote differently, and sometimes they talked differently, and sometimes these were written, they were written in Greek primarily, and when they translated, they liked to use the these and the thous. So some of these I'm going to read to you today, that's where, what we're going to have to listen to, so we'll work through that. But here he is in a letter that he wrote, he says, But if they say that our Lord also did these things only in appearance, referring to miracles... Okay? He's referring to the supernatural things that Jesus did. He only did them in appearance. We shall refer them back to the prophetic declarations and show from them that all these things were strictly foretold and were done by him and that he alone is the Son of God. So in other words, the works that Jesus did were foretold ahead of time. Remember, we talked about the Messianic miracles, especially those four. But he's sitting there saying all of those things. We can go back and show them in Scripture that he did these. Wherefore also, those who were truly his disciples, receiving grace from him in his name, performed these things for the benefit of the rest of men, as everyone received the free gift from him. So were the disciples? It says everyone, all his, who were truly his disciples. Does that just mean the twelve? No, it does not. Some indeed, most certainly, and truly cast out demons. Jesus did it, and these guys did it, okay? Remember, we're later on in life. So that frequently those persons themselves were cleansed from wicked spirits, believed and were received into the church. Others have the knowledge of things to come. As also visions and prophetic communications, others heal the sick by the imposition of hands. That's laying on of hands. And restore them to health. And moreover, as we said above, even the dead have been raised and continued with us for many years. And why should we say more? It is impossible to tell the number of gifts which the church throughout the world received from God and the deeds performed in the name of Jesus Christ that was crucified under Pontius Pilate and this to every day for the benefits of the heathen without deceiving any or exacting their money. That means selling them. He said, we can't even tell the number. Were these things going on past the time of the apostles? Yes, it was. He lived over 100 years past these guys. Let's go on. For as she has received freely from God, she being the church, she also ministers. Nor does she perform anything by means of angelic invocations or by incantations or by any other wicked curious art, but directing her prayers to the Lord who made all things in a pure, sincere, and straightforward spirit and calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. She has been accustomed to work miracles for the advantage of mankind. Now, what does accustomed mean? It happens regularly. It's like y'all been accustomed to eating, right? We get up, we eat. It's a good thing. This was regular for them. So they have been accustomed to work miracles for the advantage of mankind and not to lead them into error. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even now, confers benefits and cures thoroughly and effectually all who anywhere believe on Him. So uh, Irenaeus sure seemed to believe in miracles. There's other writings you can see. So I saw them with my own eyes. I saw this happen. Now, if you start getting into some of the systematic theologies and in church doctrine, when you get into some of your denominational stuff, is you'll, you'll see things like this ignored. Why? Because they don't talk about the power of God. They kind of like to pick and choose what they want. Well, that's Irenaeus. Let's look at another guy. Let's look at Tertullian. Lived from 160 to 222 A.D. Kind of the same thing. Would you believe if I told you I drew that? Good. You shouldn't. 
Here's one quote from him. And again, I could take hundreds of these guys. I'm trying to keep this brief. God everywhere manifests signs of His own power to His own people for their comfort and to strangers for a testimony unto them. Okay, that's Tertullian. How about a guy named Origen? 185 to 254. Okay? Here we go. And some give evidence of having received through their faith a marvelous power by the cures which they perform. What are we talking about? Healing. Invoking no other name over those who need their help than that of the God of all things and of Jesus, along with mention of his history. What name? Name of Jesus. For we too have seen many persons freed by the, those, these means from grievous calamities. What are we talking about? Sickness. And from distractions of mind and from madness, and from countless others' ills, which could not be cured either by men or devils. In other words, medicine couldn't fix this, but we've seen them healed in the name of Jesus. So did he believe that the miracle ceased? Nope. They watched them happen. Well, let's go a little further. Let's look at Augustine. 354 to 440. We're getting a couple years in the front. The Catholic Church loves to quote this guy. But as you're going to see, they leave parts of it out. Now on this one, I specifically cited the sources in here. You'll see them at the bottom. So if you want to go look on your own, you are more than welcome. In fact, I would encourage you to do it, number one. And number two, I'd encourage you to look past what I just read or, and this specific thing because they're all over the place. It takes a little digging, but here we go. This is from the, the, he wrote several books called The City of God. It says, then, and this is when we get into the thou's, this is how it was translated. Then thou didst reveal in a vision to thy bishop, who has just been mentioned, the place where the bodies of the martyrs, Prestatius and Gervatius, lay hidden. Thou hadst concealed them uncorrupted for so many years in thy secret treasury, from which thou mightest produce them at the opportune time in order to restrain the madness of a woman, even though an empress. Brought to light and unearthed with fitting reverence, they were moved to the Ambrosian Basilica. And not only were those whom unclean spirits tormented made well when these demons acknowledged their presence, but also a certain man who had been blind for many years and well known as a citizen throughout the city, asked and was told the reason for the tumultuous joy of the people. And I'm going to pause there. What you need to understand here is Augustine's theology was not all right on with everything. But he's just telling what he's, what he's seen happen, right? So we've seen demons cast out. We've seen blind men healed, right? Let's go on. He jumped up and begged his guide to bring him thither. When he had been led there, he obtained admittance so that he might touch the bier with his handkerchief. For precious in thy sight is the death of thy saints. When he did this and put the handkerchief up to his eyes, they were immediately opened. The news of this spread, and as a result, thy praises were fervent and glowing. And, though the mind of the enemy, Justina, has not brought the sanity of belief, at least it was restrained from the insanity of persecution. Thanks be to thee, O my God. Whence and whither hast thou guided my recollection, so that I might even confess these things to thee, which, though important, I had passed over in my forgetfulness. What's he talking about? The miracles. He's like, I kind of forgot about these. I've looked over them. Yet even then, when the odor of thy ointment smelled so sweet, we did not run after thee. And so I wept the more during the singing of thy hymns, having tried for so long a time to catch a breath of thee, and now finally being able to breathe thee in to the extent that breath can find space in a house of grass. What's he talking about? The presence of the Almighty. 
There was the case also in Carthage and in Ascentia, a woman of the highest social standing and at the same time deeply religious. She was suffering from cancer of the breast, a malady as a profession holds that yields to no known medical treatment. They had no cure for this. In the case of cancer, all that is usually done is to excise completely the portion of the body, which means cut it off, where the trouble begins, or else, following the supposed opinion of Hippocrates, and you know him, the Hippocratic Oath, our doctors still take that today. He was kind of the founder of modern medicine, if you will. He had some weird ideas I'll not get into because they're weird. To attempt no treatment whatever and so prolong somewhat a life that is already doomed. They're going to die anyway. Let's make them comfortable. Okay? In Essentia, accepting the second alternative, she was going to die, on the advice of an eminent doctor who was a close friend of the family, but took herself solely to God in prayer. However, just before Easter, she had a dream in which she was told to wait on the women's side of the baptistry until the first of the newly baptized women should approach, and then to ask her to make the sign of Christ on the affected breast. This she did, and she was immediately cured. Cancer was not cured. Cancer today is not cured. It is dealt with. It's not cured. They had no hope. You either cut it off, or you just prepare for death. What does she have? She had a dream from God to go and do something specific. What's he writing down? Exactly what happened. And you can see there the book that that came from. Okay? Well, so he begins after this to make the argument because at this point, some were saying that, well, you know, these things have stopped. He even said himself, I forgot about these, God. I've overlooked this. Okay? Let's go on. It is sometimes objected that miracles, which Christians claim to have occurred, no longer happen. One answer might be that they are no longer needed as they once were to help an unbelieving world to believe. Is that true? No. As things now are, any lone believer looking for a miracle to help him to believe in the midst of a world in which practically everyone already believes is surely himself a marvel of no mean magnitude. However, the malice of the objection is the insinuation that not even the earlier miracles ought to be believed. It is an insinuation that leaves our friends with two facts unexplained. How do they explain that the ascension of Christ into heaven has come to be everywhere proclaimed with so firm a faith? And how do they explain that our world, which is so advanced in culture and so critical in mentality, has come without benefit of miracles to believe so miraculously in reality so incredible? What's he saying, guys? He's saying, if you say this, then we've got to go back and say, well, wait a minute. Because it's based off the resurrection and ascension of Christ that the whole world is hearing about Jesus as Savior. That in and of itself is a miracle. So you have to deny all of that. So he goes on. Perhaps there they will say, well, the tales were not wholly incredible, and so people came to believe them. In that case, our friends have to still explain that why they themselves have remained incredulous. In other words, why do they still believe if these miracles were just a story? In other words, he's getting to the point where they're starting to look at this as if, well, these didn't really happen the way they say. They're kind of allegorical. We can take some truth from the story. It's kind of like the story of the tortoise and the hare. Did a real turtle race a real rabbit? No, there's a purpose. Trust the process slow and steady wins the race right thank god because i am both slow and well i'm not all that steady let's go on Perhaps it is better to meet such irresponsible skepticism and a summary dilemma which would run as follows. Either the world has founded its faith in an unseen and incredible occurrence on the fact that no less incredible occurrences not merely took place but were seen to take place, or else the original occurrence was so palpably credible that it needed no additional miracles to convince men's minds of its truth. So either it's just complete nonsense, 
or it's done. In either case, our friends are left with no justification of their own willful skepticism. It is simply undeniable that as a fact, there have been any number of miracles attesting the one sublime and saving miracle of Christ's ascension into heaven with the flesh in which he arose from the dead. The books which record these miracles are absolutely trustworthy. And what is more, they record not merely the attesting miracles, but the ultimate object of our faith, which the miracles were meant to confirm. What is that object? Jesus himself. The miracles were made known to help men's faith. And, of course, they are now still better known on the account of the faith which the world has embraced. The miracles are read to our people in our churches to nourish their faith. Although the people would not be in the churches to hear them read unless the miracles were already believed. In other words, if you don't believe them, why would you show up? It's not a bad question. The truth is that even today... Miracles are being wrought in the name of Christ. What is even today? Well, somewhere between 300 and the 400s, right? That's when he lived. So he didn't write this after he died. He didn't write it before he was born. So we can guess it's somewhere in the middle. Only such miracles do not strike the imagination with the same flashing brilliance as the earliest, earlier miracles. And so they do not get the same flashing plus publicity as the other did. The fact that the canon of our scripture is definite, or definitively closed bring it, brings it about the original miracles were, are everywhere repeated and are fixed in people's memory. Whereas contemporary miracles which happen here or there seldom become known even to the whole of the local population in and around the place where they occur especially is the case in the more populous cities where relatively few learn the facts while most of the people remain uninformed and when the news does spread from mouth to mouth even in the case of Christians reporting to Christians it is too unauthoritative to be received without some difficulty or doubt now picture this guys miracles are taking place but they're not becoming widespread news why is that because they didn't have Twitter how did word get around? Word of mouth. That's how it got. Jesus out working all of this stuff. So this stuff's happening, but it's not widespread, especially in the more populous city, for two reasons. One, we've got a population. How are we going to get the news out? The second is that when they are getting out, they look at them as uninformed, unauthoritative. They're just like, ah, I don't know if I buy that. Right? We do that today. We, go, we hear about a miracle happen. We have a tendency to be like, mm, I don't know. I'll believe it when I see it. You know who else did that? The disciples. They all did it too. The women come and say, hey, he's alive. Hey, no, he's not. Go make me a sandwich. That's what they said. That's in the Message Bible. I'm just kidding. This, however, was not the case with a miracle that took place in Milan while I was there. A great many people managed to hear of a blind man whose sight was restored because the city is big and besides, the emperor was there. At the time, and an immense multitude of people was gathered to venerate the relics of the martyrs, Prestatius and Gervasius, and so witness what took place. The emperor himself was there and saw this blind man made well. Did he believe in the miracles? Did they stop? We're into the 400s now, guys. We're still going on. Okay? Now let me read you out of a guy. There's a guy in the 1800s that wrote, his last name was Harnack. He wrote a book listing miracles from the 2nd and 3rd century. Going on, just, just kind of just made a list of what was going on. I'm just going to go through these quickly. 
Okay? God speaks to the missionaries in visions, dreams, and ecstasy, revealing to them affairs of moments and also trifles controlling their plans, pointing out the roads on which they are to travel, the cities where they are to stay, and the persons whom they are to visit. Visions occur especially after a martyrdom, the dead martyr appearing to his friends during the weeks uh, that immediately follow his death, as in the case of Potemia, however you say that name. This is Eusebius, Eusebius writing this one. He spoke to the missionaries, and how? In visions, dreams, revealing the plan, where we go next, what we do. Does that still happen? You bet. Hear about it all the time. It was by means of a dream that Arnobius and others were converted. Even in the middle of the third century, the two great bishops, Desonius and Cyprian, were both visionaries. At the missionary addresses of the apostles or evangelists or at the services of the churches, which they founded, sudden movements of rapture are experienced, many of them being simultaneous seizures. They are either full of terror and dismay, convulsing the whole spiritual life, or exultant outbursts of a joy that sees heaven open to its eyes. The simple question, what must I do to be saved, also bursts upon the mind with an elemental force. That's what we're talking about. Guys, these people are shaking on the ground. What is a seizure? That's what you see them do. This is happening in their services. And it says it's one of two things. It's because of the fear of sin and wrath, or it's because heaven is opened up to them, that God is touching them. Well, let's go on. Some are inspired who have power to clothe their experience in words, prophets to explain the past, to interpret and to fathom the present and to foretell the future. Their prophecies relate to the general course of history, but also to the fortunes of individuals, to what individuals are to do and leave undone. Now, this is a big, like, stick in the cessationist thing because they talk about the prophecies. Prophecies were big pictures, right? They said, well, there aren't really any New Testament individual prophecies. That's not true. People came to Paul and said, hey, when you go to Jerusalem, there's that guy that showed up to Paul and said, listen, takes his belt out and he binds his hands and his feet. This is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem when you go. But here it's like they've got big picture in the state of history and individual prophecies, right? Practice exactly how we see it in the scriptures. Okay? So I'm not just reading you what people say. I'm showing you how it lines up exactly with what the Bible said. Number four here, brethren are impaired with the impulse to improvise prayers and hymns and psalms. What is that talking about? Impulse. Happens in a moment, right? Going through the grocery store. As you're setting your groceries on, you look up, what's there? Peanut butter cups. And what do you do? You buy the peanut butter cups. It's an impulse buy, but it's a good one. So they're just coming up with these songs, these hymns. They're just singing out of their spirit. Number five, others are so filled with the Spirit that they lose consciousness and break out in stammering speech and cries or an unintelligible utterance, which can be interpreted, however, by those who have the gift. What's he talking about? Tongues. But he just said they're unintelligible, and yet they're interpreted. It's exactly what 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. What Paul said. They're so filled with the Spirit. They lose consciousness. What do they do? They fall. We call that slain in the Spirit. Those words are never mentioned in Scripture. But you see those types of things happening. Are you so arrogant to say that the Lord couldn't knock you over? The power of God couldn't touch your body? Boy, I hope not. He might prove you wrong. (laughs) Number six, into the hands of others. Again, the Spirit slips a pen, either in an ecstasy or in an exalted moment of spiritual tension. They are not merely speak, but write as they are bidden. They begin to write down things to come. Sick persons are brought and healed by the missionaries or by brethren who have been but recently awakened. Wild paroxysm, 
of terror before God's presence are also soothed. And in the name of Jesus, demons are cast out. What are we seeing? The same events that happened in the New Testament are happening in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century. I'm not done. We're almost done. The Spirit impels men to an immense variety of extraordinary action, to symbolic actions which are meant to reveal some mystery or to give some directions for life, as well as to the deeds of heroism. Here's another one. Some perceive the presence of the Spirit with every sense. They see its brilliant light. They hear its voice. They smell the fragrance of immortality and taste its sweetness. Nay more, they see celestial persons with their own eyes, see them and also hear them. They peer into what is hidden or distant or to come. They are even wrapped into the world to come, into heaven itself, where they listen to words that cannot be uttered. They're seeing into the spiritual world. We saw Elijah do that. He said, hey, oh, God, open his eyes, let him see. And he sees this angelic army all around him. You see these visions, Peter having this vision of these things coming down. What are we seeing? The same thing's happening. Why do we get the idea that it ceased? Because we've been a weak church and we've gotten away, away from the things of God. And I want to give you a couple more modern examples, okay? We're going to jump forward to John Wesley. Now, he lived from 1703 to 1791. If you don't know who John Wesley is, he is the founder of the Methodist church, okay? We've got a Methodist church here in town. Right? They got a new pastor, Donna. If you haven't met her, you should. She's a great gal. She's, she's a lot of fun. And so he's written several things about this. Now, here we go. This is, this is a letter that's responding to a critic about some of his meetings where people kind of get a little uncontrolled. Right? They get a little out of hand. This is his response. You deny that God does now work these effects. What effects? Whatever those uncontrolled things are. At least that he works them in this manner. I affirm both, because I have heard those things with my own ears and have seen them with my eyes. I have seen, as far as a thing that this can be seen, very many persons change in a moment from the spirit of fear, horror, despair, to the spirit of love, joy, and peace, and from sinful desire till the reigning over them to a pure desire of doing the will of God. It's talking about people giving their lives to Christ. I have known several persons in whom the great change was wrought in a dream or during a strong representation to the eyes of their mind of Christ either on the cross or he's in glory. And that such a change was then wrought appears not from their shedding tears only or from falling into fits or crying out. These are not the fruits as you seem to suppose or by a judge, but from the whole tenor of their life till then many ways wicked from that time, holy, just, and good." He's saying these things you're seeing, these uncontrolled outbursts, he's crying, all of that. That's not the fruit. The fruit is the changed life, right? Amen. But it's, it's, there's something happening here. And you're going to say that this isn't going on? This is the founder of the Methodist Church, guys. They've come a long way since then. Some of you guys lived it. I've been it. I've been in incredible Methodist churches where they just love the Word and they just preach the Gospel and all of that. But what happened to the Spirit of God? Their own founder talks about Him moving. Well, let's look on this. Here's another example. The grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so soon withdrawn, watch this closely, was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began then to ridicule whatever gifts they had not themselves and to cry against them as all evil and madness. What stopped the gifts from moving? Dry, Orthodox men. In other words, we don't do things that way. We're very pious. We see that religious spirit today. Not just there. I mean, I'm not just, you know, I'm throwing them under the bus. I'm just, this is just an example, guys. There was a time 
where the Spirit of God moved in the church. And now you've got to go to a certain one to see that. Here's another one. This is just kind of, a, it's from the same writings, but it's just another piece here. It does not appear that these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost were common in the church for more than two or three centuries. We seldom hear of them after that fatal period when the Emperor Constantine called himself a Christian and from a vain imagination of promoting the Christian cause, thereby heap riches and power and honor upon the Christians in general, but in particular upon the Christian clergy. So what's he saying caused this? He said, we don't see him much after that. Why? Suddenly the church got comfortable. Because the state's now behind you. Hey, I'll give you money. I'll pay your priest. I mean, that's what they were doing. They were now working for the, uh, working for the government. From this time, they almost totally ceased. Almost, not completely. Very few instances of their kind were found. The cause of this was not, as has been vulgarly supposed, because there was no more occasion for them, because all the world has become Christians. This is a miserable mistake. Not a twentieth part of it was then nominally Christian. The real cause was the love of many, almost of all Christians, so-called was waxed cold. The Christians had no more of the Spirit of Christ than the other heathens. The Son of Man, when He came to examine His church, could hardly find faith upon the earth. This was the real cause why the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost were no longer to be found in the Christian church, because the Christians were turned heathens again and had only a dead form left. Welcome to America, folks. That's all we have. We have religion. We have our piousness. And he recognized in the 1700s, has it gotten better? No. If anything, it's gotten worse. Well, let's go on. Here's another one. Many more were brought to the birth, salvation. All were in floods of tears. They cried. They prayed. They roared aloud. All of them lying on the ground. Roaring is not like a lion. They weren't making animal noises. They're just groaning to the Lord. Romans talks about that. Here's another one. When I began to pray, the flame broke out. Many cried aloud. Many sank to the ground. Many trembled exceedingly. I got more. Mr. Hall, Kinchin, Ingham, Whitefield Lane, with about 60 of our brethren, about three in the morning, as we were continuing in instant prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out of the, for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little, and he's referring to himself as well, from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice, we praise Thee, O God, we acknowledge Thee to be Lord. So they're in a prayer meeting, and the power of God fell upon them. And it says, when they kind of came to. Does that sound like the New Testament? Yep, we're in the 1700s. Well, let's read another one. Now this one is, because is, George Whitfield, one of the uh, great awakening preachers, he didn't kind of like some of the stuff that was going on. He was very, very cautious in it. And so Wesley is going to discuss this in a letter to him, and, and, and in person as well. And this says Saturday the 7th, and this is from his journal. I had an opportunity to talk to him, referring to George, of these outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. So often. Doesn't mean every time, but it's frequent. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misrepresentations of matter of fact. But the next day, he had an opportunity of informing himself better. For no sooner had he begun, he's talking about his sermon, to invite all sinners to believe in Christ, than four persons sunk down close to him almost in the same moment. 
One of them lay without either sense or motion. So he's just... Uh, he's a statue. A second trembled exceedingly. The third had strong convulsions all over his body, but made no noise unless by groans. And the fourth, equally convulsed, compo- called upon God with strong cries and tears. And from this time, I trust, we shall all suffer, suffer God to carry on his work in the way that pleaseth him. He's getting on like guy that was part of the Great Awakening. Like even secularists represent, represent this as a good thing in the early founding of the church. All right. Here's one from Friday 8th, uh, May of 8th of 1741. I found myself out much out of order. However, I made shift to preach in the evening. But on Saturday, my bodily strength quite failed, so that for several hours I could scarce lift my head. He's getting sick. On the 10th of Sunday, the next day, or excuse me, two days later, I was obliged to lie down most part of the day, being easy only in that posture. Yet in the evening, my weakness was suspended while I was calling sinners to repent. So he had some strength to get up and preach. But at our love feast, which followed meal, besides the pain in my back and head and the fever which still continued upon me, just as I began to pray, I was seized with such a cough that I could hardly speak. That ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Now watch what he says here. At the same time came strongly into my mind, these signs shall follow them that believe. Now what's he talking about? Mark 16, right? Read it last week. I called on Jesus aloud to increase my faith and to confirm the word of his grace. And while I was speaking, my pain vanished away, the fever left me, my bodily strength returned, and for many weeks I felt neither weakness nor pain. Unto thee, O Lord, do I give thanks. You mean that passage that Jesus said that these signs will follow them that believe and it just dawned on him in the moment? He's like, oh, that's right. This is what the word, Lord. Give me the faith I need to stand on this word. And what happens? He gets up. He had work to do. He didn't have time to lay down. I don't know about you, but I don't have time to lay down. I don't have time to get sick. Now, I'm going to read you out of his commentary on this passage, Mark 16. These signs will follow them. They will pray in new tongues. They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll recover. Cast out demons. All of those things, right? Here's what he says. This is number 17 in his commentary. And these signs shall follow them that believe. An eminent author subjoins that believe with the very faith mentioned in the preceding verse prior to that. Though it is certain that a man may work miracles and not have saving faith. Because we see examples of that. Here we go. It was not one faith by which St. Paul was saved and another by which he wrought miracles. Even at this day in every believer, faith has a latent miraculous power. Every effective prayer being really miraculous. Although in many, both because of their own littleness of faith and because the world is unworthy, that power is not exerted. Miracles in the beginning were helps to the faith. Now also, they are the object of it. At Leonberg, in the memory of our fathers, a cripple that could hardly move with crutches while the dean was preaching on this very text was in a moment made whole. This is his commentary. The power of God moving, making somebody well. Guys, was this happening then? Yeah, absolutely it was. Well, that's the Methodist. Let's go one more. Let's talk about the guy that started the Lutheran church, Martin Luther. We know him, right? The Reformation. Because some people go trick-or-treat and some of us nail things on doors of churches, right? No? Tough crowd. Okay, let's move on. But here's what he has to say about this. An example, and this is a story, I'm reading you the story. An example of such faith in the life of Luther occurred when he received word that his friend and calling Frederick Myconius lay dying in the last stages of tuberculosis. That is a rarity today and can be fixed. Back then it was instant death. 
When Luther read the report, a supernatural and bold face rose up in his heart. He then penned a letter to Myconius in which he said, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. So he's a little, you know, hey, hey, you can't die yet. I ain't done with you. The half... The, the Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will per- permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Myconius said that when he read the letter, it seemed as though he heard Christ say, Lazarus, come forth. Luther's words were fulfilled. Myconius was healed and outlived Luther by two months. On another occasion, Luther's close friend and colleague, Philip, Melantha, that guy, Philip, we're going to stick with Philip, became extremely ill and was at death's door. Luther is said to have fervently prayed using all the relevant promises he could repeat from Scripture. As he prayed, a supernatural faith rose up in his heart. He then turned and taking Philip by the hand said, Be of good courage, Philip, you shall not die. Philip immediately revived and soon regained his health. He later said, I should have been a dead man had it not been recalled from the death itself by the coming of Luther. Why don't we see that happening today? We're in the 1700s. Did these things ever die out? They didn't die. They were ignored. The Holy Spirit doesn't die. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Word. Guys, and I'm stopping here because I'm not even going to get into the 1800s and the 1900s. we got guys like John Lake. John Lake was arrested for practicing medicine without a license because so many people were being healed up in the Washington area. He had these healing rooms where people all over the world would come there. It was considered the healthiest city in America. Doctors and hospitals were going out of business. What about Zion, Illinois? Where, uh, what's his name? Now it's slipping my mind. You guys know. Was it? The guy's name I can't think of. I'll think of it. Somebody Google it for me. He set up a city. He, wanted to, he believed in the miraculous power of God. Every Sunday, his church took up offering for bail money because he was constantly arrested in the Chicago area for practicing medicine without a license. They couldn't wrap their heads around it. I mean, you, Amy Simple McPherson, all of these things. You got Lester Sumrall who saw incredible miracles. He tells a story one time that he was camping. He was over in Africa, and he was staying in this tent and uh, they had seen so many miracles going on. People were giving their lives to Christ by the droves. And he's sleeping one night in the tent. And uh, now this was a very bold man. When this guy landed in a country, he'd get off the plane and he says, Devil, I'm here. He was a very bold man. He, kinda, he, just, he just went at it. So he's laying there in his tent one night and his cot started bouncing across the tent. And he got mad because it woke him up. He didn't want to be woke up. He said, Devil, put it back. Then shook right back over where it was guys there are stories out there of the miracles happening but how did they happen it's through the baptism in the spirit it's by a people bull and what do we see continuously it was through the knowledge of the word if you don't know what the promises are and the authority given to you you'll never act on it you gotta you gotta that's why we spend so much time in the scriptures i'm a teacher of the word and I thank God for the gift He's given me. I, I, I love it and stuff. But I'm not so callous to think that I've got it all figured out in one sense. And I'm not so callous to think that if we just know the Word, that's all we need. No, we need to know and to practice. You notice that they don't teach football, they train. Because I can teach you everything you want to know about football. Well, I can't, but somebody could. But you get out there and practice. Run it again. Run it again. Get that play down right. 
Why is that? Because training is different than teaching. We're to be equipped with the Word and with the Spirit. Guys, I'll tell you a few stories that, that I have. There was a couple, I've told you some of this before, that had three miscarriages, were unable to take a baby to term, and were just devastated by it. And I'm leaving the Walmart, and the Lord said, I want you to go pray for them, they're going to get pregnant. And I chickened out, but I prayed for him for my truck. I didn't go lay hands on him because I, Amy had a miscarriage. It's a very difficult time. Um, and I was just, I was a little bit younger and I was a little nervous. And so I prayed for him. I took authority over the devil. I rebuked him in Jesus' name. Three months later, I get a little card from him saying they're pregnant. And I told them what had happened. And I said, I knew you would be pregnant. I said, because it's the power of God, not based off my obedience. And so they were pregnant. They had three children in two years. He sent me a text message one day. He's like, you think you can shut it off? I said, I've got a pamphlet that'll explain the process if you need me to. <laughs> but supernaturally healed. They're, they're just, and now they're done. <laughs> Three and two. Guys, that's, that's working. That's, that's nuts. I've seen other people where, where we have just prayed for them and instantly they were healed. I've seen people that walk away from a service and come back the next day, they're healed. I mean, I've seen all sorts of these different things. Pastor Bernie, when he was here last year, talked about when he was in, I think it was Indonesia, and he had a lady come up, he had no pupil, and was praying for her, and he watched that pupil form in her eyes. I mean, these are just some examples. The power of God is real, and it's alive. But you know the problem is? We don't walk in it. We don't walk in the authority that we've been given it because we don't know it. We're too chicken to stand out boldly and just proclaim the things of God, and we don't train for it. If you never pray for the sick, they're never going to get healed. I can guarantee you, it's 100% effective. It's never going to happen. But some of you guys have seen God move in your life supernaturally. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is I want someone to just tell a story. You can come up here, I'll give you the mic. You can just say it from where you are. Tell us something of where God either supernaturally moved in your life or through your life. I know Jim's got a bunch, Jim and Alma, they're doing work all over there. I know Janet's got some of me. We've all seen it. So somebody, boldly, tell us. Jim, we'll start with you. Your wife's putting you at it. Do you want the mic? She's pushing you up. I really don't know which one to talk about. She says, and which a lot of people have been in the church for quite a while already know about Victor, but I'm going to share with some of those that haven't been in here quite so long about Victor. Victor is a, a gentleman that lived in El Salvador that he was a town drunk. I mean, he, he's, you'd find him sleeping in the gutters and stuff. Kids would throw rocks at him. The dogs would pee on his legs and everything else. You know, he was just a bum. And uh, one night at a service, they brought him to the church service in a wheelbarrow. Uh, they poured him in a wheelbarrow and brought him in in a wheelbarrow. And uh, at the end of the service, I asked for people to come forward for prayers for anything. They wheeled him up front in the wheelbarrow. And... Uh, so anyway, they got him out and stood him up, and I laid hands and started praying for Victor, uh, my wife and I, and, and uh, Victor went a little crazy on us. Uh, he started screaming and shouting and, and beating his chest and beating the floor, and he fell to the ground, and, and, uh, but which, which I could sense in my spirit that it was a, a demonic thing, you know, and I could sense that that spirit hadn't left him yet, so this went on two more times. And finally, Victor fell to the floor, and Victor looked up at me, and Victor knew absolutely no English or anything, but Victor, Victor looked up at me, and he said, who in the heck are you anyway? Did he say heck? No. <laughs> he didn't use quite them words. We'll, we'll make it simple for church, but he didn't say quite them words, and, and Victor knew no English or anything, which I just looked at him, and I says, you know, it really don't matter who I am. I'm here in the name of Jesus, and you got to come out of that. The spirit left him at that. Uh, 
after the church service was over, I went to walk out the door. Victor come up and give me a hug. Uh, and later on, we, we, Victor was really good with his hands. We took him some equipment down, and, and he became a carpenter and stuff and, and started building things. And we haven't heard from Victor for about 10 years now. Uh, just so happens this week we got back in touch with him on, on Facebook, and uh, he was up uh, all along the Honduras border up there and, and he said pictures of him cutting down these trees and making lumber and stuff out of it. He's building his church up there. But Victor said that, you know, if not for the power of God working through us, that there's no doubt he would not be alive today. But Yeah. Uh, and there's some more, but I let somebody else in here. God yeah. is good. God's good. Now, isn't that crazy? Now, why don't we see that kind of stuff around here? Do you think that stuff isn't needed around here for some reason? Because I don't. I think it's desperately needed. Anybody else? It can be something recent. In your life, too. Yeah. Most of you know uh, the story I told uh, about my daughter's uh, healing of her foot. And uh, I have a 39-year-old daughter who, who has a very young heart. And uh, she was racing her husband on the kids' scooters last year in March. Uh, it was actually March 4th. And... Uh, they were racing, and uh, he got ahead of her, and she went and grabbed his shirt tail to throw him into the grass, and she went flying into the grass. The problem was is her foot landed upright, and her body landed on her foot, breaking her foot in 12 places, severely injured. She went to the emergency room and proceeded the next five days to be on morphine in the hospital while they waited for the uh, swelling to go down so that they could get in there and they had told her already they were going to be doing major surgery on her foot, pinning each of those toes back in place because the whole center of your foot that your toe and your ankle are, are attached to was upended on the wrong side. And so they were waiting for that swelling to go down. She had an expert uh, doctor that dealt in feet and said probably never walk the right way again and you'll be probably crippled for life. And so we were praying for her, and I came up to the day that she was to have surgery, and uh, the doctor knocked her out and took her into surgery, and her husband and I and her mother-in-law were in there, and uh, he came out and said, well, her foot was too swollen to do uh, surgery, so what I did was I reset the bones, means I had her knocked out. Now, I'm going to send her home. And then within a couple of weeks, once that swelling goes down, then I'm going to have to do this surgery. Well, they were even going to graft from her hip to take pieces they needed to put that foot back together. Well, we kept praying. Those two weeks went by. We got She went back to the doctor's office. And uh, he said, well, you know, this is funny. This foot's staying together. These bones, they're just staying right in place. You know what? I think we're going to just cast this, and then we're going to keep a watch on it. Well, every two weeks that she'd go back, and they'd take the cast off. They'd x-ray it again, and uh, they would put a new cast on. She went through about three casts. She was bedridden for, I don't know, about three months, wasn't it, Dwayne? And, uh, you know, she had a, you know, then she graduated to having um a little scooter that she could put her foot on and scoot herself around the house and stuff like that. And all the time they were saying, you know, this foot's probably uh, going to end up having 
probably still you might end up having major surgery. Every time the doctors would say something, we would just pray again. Well, she finally ended up, she got the cast off. Her foot stayed in place. She started walking and she continued to walk. And then she was having a little bit of pain in a certain area. She says, I went to the doctor mom and she says, I couldn't believe it. She says, I cracked my toes and I about went through the ceiling. It hurt so bad. And she said, and the next morning, <laughs> she says, my foot felt fine. I said, we've been praying for you, you know, all along. God's been good. He's been listening, and he is helping you every step of the way. And here she is. It's uh, 10 months since she broke that foot. Never expected her to walk uh, again the way a normal person would walk. And, you know, she's walking with, she gets a limp once in a blue moon, but she's walking good. Now my prayers are for her to run, mm -hmm. to be able to run. I don't want her to get on that scooter ever again. I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't like running. She's a little crazy. <laughs> but, you know, God's been really good and blessed her many times over. And uh, each time, you know, we just pray. And, and the Lord always, always comes and he answers. Always in Jesus' name, he answers prayer. So don't ever, ever give up. He's yep. always there for all of us, and he listens to us every minute of every day. And if we will be obedient and pray to him and just ask and receive what he's given us, he'll answer our prayers. Amen. Okay. These signs will follow them to believe. That's what we're talking about, guys. Anybody else? Did you raise your hand? All else fails. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
going to happen. Yep. So that our babies don't go to a hospital, in the name of Jesus, we speak to it. Because you have all authority. Yep. You have all authority in the name of Jesus over the power of the enemy. Don't let him deceive you into thinking, oh geez, or, or bring fear on you, because your fear will cost, will count out your faith. Yep. It'll cancel it out. Don't be afraid of the flu. Don't be afraid of anything going around. Take authority over it. You're not going to come on my baby. You're not going to come in this house. You're not going to be in this church. This is the body of Christ. We're not going to allow sickness and disease to come in. Yep. We've got to have that time of boldness and authority. And this is also how our faith is built up, yep. by the word of our faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's where it comes through revelation. They overcame him, which is the devil, by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We have to tell one another how good God is. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to brag on him and not give the devil any credit for anything because he's deceiving us. Amen. All he can do is deceive us into taking something that is hanging on us. Don't take it. I'm done. Preach it. <laughs> Scott. Absolutely. You guys will notice when the Spirit of God begins to move, you'll see an increase in a, a, attacks from different angles, and we've got to be prepared for that. See, the thing is, guys, we've got to get past agreeing with what the Bible says. We've got to believe it. I mean, you think about this. Would you go to a heart surgeon if you needed heart surgery, if he wasn't confident in his abilities? He's like, well, I don't think I'll kill you in the process. I'm not 100% sure. What are you going to do? You're going to go somewhere else. I mean, you want someone who's confident. No, nah, I can get this. No problem. I mean, it's the same thing. We're not confident in the Word because we don't truly believe it yet. We've got to get there. Because confidence and faith, as you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, so we're going to get into faith and what it is and what it is not. Faith is trust. And if we trust it, then we will act on it. Okay? So, I'll give you a, a stupid example, but I think it's funny and there's truth to it. I'm a rather large guy. I don't know if you knew that, but new newsflash, folks. And there were chairs that I trust when I sit down. And there were some that I look at and I say, you will be kindling when I get through with you. And I, as dumb as that is, but you think about that. I sit differently when it's plastic and it's tiny and it's fragile. But when that baby's made out of solid oak, I just plop down in it. My lazy boy. Hallelujah. We just plop in that baby. It was built for me. You know, it's crazy. That, why don't we act like that with the word? Why are we not so confident in it? Because we don't believe it. We agree with it. Yeah, oh, I agree. Believers lay hands on the sick. See, the reason I wanted to do this today, guys, is I actually started this last week. And I had a lot of this in with what I was doing last week. And the Lord told me to wait. Is I want to show you all throughout history, since the birth of the church, this stuff has gone on. Guys, I could do this for six months. We could do nothing but quote of examples of miracles taking place. They had no motivation to write these down if they weren't happening. They weren't selling books. They weren't on TV. They weren't, you know, saying, send me a $1,000 seed offering and God will give you a mansion or anything like that. Because that type of stuff didn't go on. Many of them faced intense persecution for just simply believing what they were doing. 
So guys, we've got to get past that. But we need to be thankful for the one who gives us the gifts and how we receive it. We've got to start acting in that authority. And so we thank God for that. And we thank Him for everything. We thank Him for the gifts that He's bestowed us. And we, that ultimate gift is His Son. 